Hello, this is the Talking Michigan Transportation Podcast. I'm Jeff Cranson, Director of Communications at the Michigan Department of Transportation. This week, I'm speaking first with Arnie Frobum, a senior policy analyst at MDOT who's been studying a package of bills related to electric vehicle charging stations. Arnie brings a perspective uniquely informed by experience and knowledge of history. And then later, I'll be talking with Michigan's Chief Mobility Officer, Trevor Paul, about President Biden's visit to the Ford Rouge Complex Tuesday to learn about production of the all-electric F-150 pickup and what the state is doing to support what we know will be increasing demand for charging stations. First, Arnie, who points out in his last email that he covered 487 miles before having to refuel. Thanks for taking time to talk on the podcast, Arnie. Oh, glad to be here, Jeff. So let me um, set the stage with a little bit of background as summarized in E&E News just uh, a couple of years ago. When Congress passed the law that enabled Interstate Highway Network in 1956, it banned almost all economic activity at rest stops, including anything that aided motorists. That was the result of lobbying from businessmen near the highway who worried that the rest stop would be an irresistible draw. They surmised that the government would establish concessions that would pad the government's bank accounts and freeze private industry out. Ever since, states have sought to loosen those rules in order to create revenue to fund road improvements, including the maintenance of rest stops. And ever since, local businesses have resisted. In fact, it wasn't until 1983 that Congress Congress allowed the sale of vending items like Coca-Cola, M&Ms, and Cheetos. Uh, We see vending machines in almost all the rest areas now. So, Arnie, talk about why this conversation and debate are as old as the interstate freeway system itself. Yeah, the expectation of the of the architects of the interstate system was that the uh, all the services for motorists would be provided by businessmen at the freeway interchanges. Rest areas were always a an essential element of the freeway, and that's how MDOT regards them today. They're a uh, a place for motorists to pull over and get out of their cars, use the washrooms, obviously, and and most importantly. Uh, take a nap if they need to before continuing driving. So some people use them to actually rest is what you're saying. Right. That's why the official name at MDOT is uh, safety rest areas. And that's the that's the most important function from our point of view. And of course, lately, the uh, we've been actively inviting truckers to pull into the rest areas and actually spend the night now that they're mandated to be off duty for certain numbers of hours at, at various points. So the uh, the decision that the department has to make uh, for the future use of the rest areas is will these future uses conflict with the uh, the essential function of the rest areas, and that's why we we haven't really actively sought uh, to locate additional businesses at the rest areas, with one exception that we may cover in a little while here. But uh, but in, in recent years, it's uh, since. Uh, like you said, my my new car can go as far as 460 miles on a tank of gas, but getting more than 200 miles out of an electric car battery is pretty difficult. So a new feature is going to have to be added to the roadside economy. It's a natural question to ask if rest areas might not be a, a suitable location for electric car chargers. So before we get into this, this most recent package of bills um, specific to EV charging, let's talk some history first. Uh, Long before we were thinking about electric vehicle charging, um, somebody at MDOT was just thinking about 
ways to monetize rest areas um, and got pretty far along before the plug got pulled. Um, so can you talk about that? I think it goes back to the 80s. Yeah, back in the late uh, 1980s, uh, James Pitts was director of the department and Jim Pitts was recruited here from Illinois. Whereas most drivers know their toll roads have uh, what they call service oases where you can not only uh, park and use a washroom, but you'll find all, all variety of businesses, gas stations and restaurants uh, in the freeway rest areas. And the same thing is true in Ohio and New Jersey and uh, Pennsylvania and, and a number of other places. So pets, uh, like a lot of people today, have asked, why don't we have anything like that in Michigan? And the, the immediate answer is uh, those business-style rest areas are all on toll roads, which predate the interstate system and are not really a part of the interstate system, even though they have numbers like I-80 and I-76. Uh, they're covered by a different law. But the reason that the department was interested in in what we called privatizing the rest areas was we were looking for a way to uh, to export the, the burden of rest area maintenance onto somebody other than the road using taxpayer. So we began investigating if there wasn't a way to uh, make a restaurant operator or another business also operate the rest area. And then they would bear the cost of building and maintaining the rest areas as part of a business lease. But we quickly learned uh, two facts about about the law governing rest areas. Both federal and state law have real stern provisions, as you said, against doing business on the highway right-of-way. Both federal and state law restrict the business at rest areas to agencies that offer services to blind persons, and they're limited to vending machines. And both federal and state law prohibit doing business on the right-of-way, uh, business of any kind because the designers of the system knew that uh, people would be setting up all manner of fruit stands or stores or pretty much any kind of business on all those thousands of miles of land. So that's pretty expressly prohibited. And uh, in fact, even the downtown sidewalk sale requires a special permit to be on the sidewalk. And then finally, there's a unique provision of the interstate law that says there, there may not be a service station of any kind built on an interstate rest area. So building anything like this right on the freeway right away was, was clearly out. But Jim Pitts was still interested in testing the concept. So what the department did was buy a large parcel of land on the free market uh, that was the site of a, a truck stop deal that had fallen through and was available. This was on I-94 just west of Kalamazoo, where we needed a rest area to replace one that had been demolished. So we decided to try adopting the the design that some states use where the where a travel information center or a rest area is located outside the highway right-of-way reached by free access from a, a road interchanging with the freeway and we offered a site at the rest area to a restaurant chain or any other business that would want to build something there and operate the rest area now our initial expectation was that that no one would want to would want to undertake the burden of uh operating a state rest area when they could simply build a restaurant or a gas station and conduct business without having the state for a landlord. But the first surprise that came along was that restaurant chains especially were very eager to have that uh, that blue sign directing people to their business. 
because you 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 say you theorize that that blue sign lends credibility. Yeah, they felt that it would uh, it would be an endorsement of the state for their business, which is probably correct. Uh, so once we we had all this interest from private investors, uh, the department started designing the project, and it grew to include a uh, a large gas station, including truck fuel and parking spaces. And we continued designing the project and got as far as uh, holding a public information session like we do for all our projects out there west of Kalamazoo. But that's when we discovered that uh, the operators of the existing truck stops along the route had been active at the state legislature and had gotten the, uh, the legislators to add a provision to a bill that, that the department was interested in seeing passed that would prohibit the department from operating what the bill drafters called a service plaza. And that was passed, and it's now a part of the basic state highway law. So that was the end of the attempt to privatize rest areas in Michigan. But at one of these public meetings, um, somebody from from that lobby actually pointed at you and and called you a commie. So you were there um, just kind of observing as an MDOT policy analyst something that government was trying to do to offer private industry an opportunity on public land and that was somehow framed as as communism that had to have made you laugh out loud well i didn't laugh out loud uh, because the purpose of these meetings of course is to hear the opinions and uh, and complaints of the public but we did have some laughs of it laughs uh, afterward when we uh, described how what was basically a, a privatization project was was viewed by the private sector as a as government competition when all the department was interested in doing was being a, a lesser of land uh, just like any other landowner on which any businessman could come and do business yeah i mean it's the kind of thing that in the abstract uh free enterprise advocates are are saying you know all the time that it's something that government should do yeah and, and there continue to be a a slow stream of editorials advocating rest area privatization as a means of shrinking governmental expenditure but uh, but the authors of those editorials obviously haven't been talking to the owners of the truck stops right very heavily invested in in land next to the existing interchanges and as you point out, probably even a more powerful lobby today than they were back in 1988. They seem to be because they have, uh, so far at least, completely shut down debate on this point in the Congress. Uh, the last two federal highway bills have have both included attempts to uh, to allow rest area privatization, but but none ever made it into the final bills. Well. Uh, you know, with an administration with President and Secretary Pete Buttigieg at USDOT, it's, it sounds like this idea of at least freeing up some public right of way for electric vehicle charging uh, is going to get legs. Do you think that uh, that lobby is so strong at the federal level that they'll they'll be able to head that off? Well, we'll see. Uh, probably nothing has changed in the Congress. What we may find is that the U.S. Department of Transportation may make a rule change that changes the way it interprets uh, the federal law that says there cannot be a service station at a rest area, because no one really knows what a service station means. 
uh, clearly in 1958, it meant gas stations. Yeah, the kind where uh, somebody not only filled your tank for you, they washed your windows too. Yeah, whereas now we're uh, talking about plugging in an electric car. So that's it's probably within the ability of the Federal Highway Administration to do that. And we're, we're starting to hear that that's under serious consideration. That would take care of the federal law on the point. There'd be a pretty powerful lobby for that, too, given that uh, some of our, in Michigan especially, but, you know, in other states, some of our biggest employers are either automakers or suppliers, and they're going to all be tilting probably more and more gradually and maybe even exponentially toward electric vehicle production. Some people say that the what they call uh, range anxiety is the, the most limiting factor when it comes to electric car sales. Yeah, I believe that. And um, the solution to that is is a denser network of charging stations. And there are now many hundreds of thousands of electric car owners out there. Real, real quickly, I guess, we don't have want to go over every single bill, but could you just give your kind of high-level overview of, of what's going on with this package of bills, which, you know, has some pretty decent bipartisan support. I know uh, Representative Dave Legrand, a Democrat from Grand Rapids, has been pushing for this for a long time, and uh, and he's got several Republican co-sponsors. Yeah, there's a package of three bills in the Michigan House that would make the necessary changes to state law to allow charging stations to be installed at at, uh, at freeway rest areas. They would uh, amend the law governing uh, vending machines operated by the blind and prohibiting business on the right-of-way. Uh, so far, at least, they would not extend to rest areas off the freeway network. We might find that uh, that it makes a lot of sense to, to try to provide charging stations on the rural two-lane highways. Um, Where you have a lot of roadside parks. Yes, but uh, the department still has some basic decisions to make about about whether this is really a good idea or not. Uh, some Some of the rural rest areas in the remoter part of the state are not even served by electricity. We don't know how powerful the the electrical grid is next to all our rest areas. We don't know if there's enough space in in any or all rest areas to install a a row of car chargers. We know that the the rest areas depend on those parking spaces turning over every few minutes. So when you say the department has some hard decisions to make, is that your way of saying you're not going to tell me what you think should happen? I think at this point, no one really knows what the the correct model for electric car charging is going to be. One of the things we looked at lately was a history of gas stations. Uh, You know, it might be said that the free market will naturally supply uh, all the electric car charging that's needed, just like it did with gas stations back in the 1920s or earlier. But one of the differences we learned was that uh, there was a lot of competition following the breakup of Standard Oil among among uh, petroleum producers. And they had to physically get their project product in front of auto drivers in order to sell it. So they wound up building literally a gas station on almost every corner. On the other hand, there's no competition among uh, electric utilities. They know the customer has to come to them regardless of uh, what they have to do to find a charging outlet. So that that free market effect may not apply to uh, car chargers, which is one reason that the Biden administration uh, seems to be getting involved very heavily in this. 
Well, that's probably a good place to end this conversation, Arnie, but you do remind me with that uh, reference to the public utilities that you know, something that I've been thinking for a long time and you and I will have to talk about another time on a separate podcast is why we don't treat roads like the public utility that they are and have a rate setting commission uh, instead of asking Congress and state legislatures to make those decisions. Yeah, that's a, uh, a real powerful idea that has not had much attention. Yeah. Well, thank you, Arnie. This 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 is good. This is informative. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that uh, the conversation will continue uh, along these lines when Trevor Paul comes on to talk about uh, what what his Office of Future Mobility and Electrification is doing uh, on this charging infrastructure challenge. So thanks again, Arnie. OK, thanks for asking. As promised, Michigan's Chief Mobility Officer Trevor Paul is here. And if you're thinking, hey, why doesn't my state have a chief mobility officer? I can only say maybe it should. <laughs> Trevor, thanks as always for making time for the podcast. Dr. Cranson, how are you today? I'm fine. I'm fine. It's an exciting week. We had the president in the state to talk about an issue that's near and dear to us, uh, especially you in your role. Yeah. Let's talk first about what it was like Tuesday at the Ford Rouge Complex in Dearborn. Um, to be there with the president and um, some, you know, pretty high-level people talking about an issue that's that's related to jobs and the the evolution of our economy and really touches everything that we do in terms of transportation and mobility. And before you answer that, let's hear a little of what the president had to say on Tuesday. And I wanted to be here today, the day before you unveil the next generation of America's best-selling vehicle to the entire world to thank you. Thank you for showing how we win the competition of the 21st century. You know, how the future is going to be made, but it's going to be made here in America. The future of the auto industry is electric. There's no turning back. And the real question is whether we'll lead or we'll fall behind in the race of the future, or whether we'll build these vehicles and the batteries that go in them here in the United States to rely on other countries. We're going to put Americans to work modernizing our roads, our highways, our ports, our airports, rails, and transit systems. That includes putting IBEW members and the union workers to work installing 50,000 charging stations along our roads and highways, our homes and our apartments. I mean, I guess I should start by saying it's, it's not every day an American president gets to speed down a driving course. Uh, in an electric truck, let alone drive, period. So right. being on the same campus as, as that history uh, was was pretty cool. Um, and the energy inside uh, the new facility within the Dearborn Truck com Complex, it was palpable, man. It was, I mean, number one, the facility is gorgeous. It's shiny. But, you know, sometimes you, you hear the words of our leaders, and those words matter. But what matters more sometimes is the intangibles, the nonverbals, how, you know, look in Bill Ford's eye when he was uh, explaining sort of the vision for this factory and how it was going to change the world. The excitement President Biden had as, as he sort of in some ways got back to his roots. Uh, one of the first things he said was, you know, I am a car guy um, and, and told stories of the Ford Fairlane. Uh, so, you know, and actually I was reading, I, I wasn't a part of the tour, but I was reading that he went zero to 60 miles per hour in about 4.4 seconds. Um, so it's just, there's a 
there's certain moments that I think uh, don't happen everywhere all the time, but Detroit seems to get its fair share of, of these historic moments that bring together the public sector and the private sector to talk about uh, what's coming and what's about to change the world in a really positive way. Um, and I, I was feeling yesterday that that was one of those moments that we'll talk about. I mean, you think back to Obama's uh, visit to the Detroit Auto Show after Detroit's come back. I mean, that was that was an iconic visit. I felt like yesterday uh, was very much also an iconic visit. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You're talking about history, a, a historic plant already um, that's that's part of making history again. And that's that's just it, you can't overstate it. And you're right. You can't overstate. Uh, well, you know, and, and I have to say that one of the more moving moments of of the event was when the, the president of the, the UAW got up and talked about the Rouge plant and, and sort of its historical reputation and how they they just get made fun of. They essentially were called the, the museum curators, <laughs> you know, because like, well, they do have an actual museum there. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, that's all that's all that property was for a long period of time. Remnants of the past, um, remnants of what didn't work, a place where lessons were learned, which, yes, sure, you can make a case for all those things. Again, it goes back to not just the words, but just the emotions that you could tell that that particular UAW um, leader had around this new beginning. When you think about what we've been through with debates about cafe standards and people legitimately blaming, you know, emissions for a lot of our pollution and what's going on with air quality, especially in urban areas. Um, and, you know, a lot of people just blaming blaming the vehicle. And I don't think very many people, optimistic as they may be, realized how quickly we could pivot to electric energy and and completely turn that whole argument on its head. It's a good thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, but there is some truth to the statement, right? That the last 10 years have seen global carbon emissions from transportation exceed global carbon emissions from built infrastructure. So I, the, the pivot, I, I think, is, uh, is is noteworthy. Granted, there's like 3% adoption at this point for electric vehicles, but that definitely is going to change exponentially, I think, going forward, given the investments we've seen, even by just you know, Michigan's home team, General Motors, Stellantis, and Ford, just since 2019. I mean, they've invested $10 billion in in vehicles uh, that will be electric or have electric features, and and frankly, also have autonomous features. And and that's going to create 10,000 jobs. So I think that pivot is is still in its early early, uh, stages. I mean, I think we're in the first quarter of a three-overtime thriller. Um, But just the fact that we've accomplished as much as we have up to this point as, as a local industry, and you know the the money that's being put into scaling going forward, not just in the vehicles, electric vehicles themselves, but also the batteries, makes me really optimistic about this region. But also, like, keeps me up at night trying to figure out um, ways to make sure that we have the workforce, ways that you know we we have the R and D, our, our universities are are given the right resources to ensure that we're as we're producing the batteries of today we're also thinking about the batteries of tomorrow battery recycling bi-directional charging wireless charging in motion those leapfrog moments that this region is known for um as we're sort of scaling up to keep up we need to make sure that we're we're also still you know 
creating these leadership moments for the state. Because if, so if we don't do it, who's going to do it, right? So that's what's keeping you up at night and it's not having a young child. Okay, good to know. <laughs> he sleeps really well. He goes down at 7.30 and wakes up at about 7.30. Yeah, I don't know how long this is going to last, but it is amazing. It's magic. Enjoy it while you can. You're a lucky guy. But I, I also want to say that I appreciate your triple overtime metaphor, but since this is the week that Spencer Turnbull pitched a no-hitter for the Tigers, we should He did? Wow, it. breaking news. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk about, so we know that Tuesday you had that, uh, that visit with uh, the president and got to talk about what's going on with the F-150. And then on Wednesday, um, going to the point that you're making about how this will take off exponentially and, and what Ford is, is banking on and really, you know, putting all their chips on uh, is, is what this vehicle will offer to people and yeah. why they'll like it. So can you talk about that? From what I gather, and we, we haven't seen the official rollout yet, that'll be this evening and we're recording in the afternoon. There will be functionality that people will really like because obviously with electric vehicles, you know, the content of the car is changing, where things are placed, the, the battery skateboard concept frees up the front um, for, for an additional storage space, which they're calling the frunk. Um, you may hear that. Uh, but then also the ability for the car to operate as a generator. Um, and you've seen this in crisis situations down in Texas recently with the weather, climate change. There, there's bi-directional charging capabilities that even can roll in some solar components. And that will be some news that's made tonight where you'll, you'll be able to leverage solar panels to charge your vehicle and in turn add power back into the grid and improve um, your energy cost models as a consumer, but also as a business. Now, the thing that I think will be market moving for, for this new vehicle is the price. I think people will love the functionality, but from what I've been told, and I, I don't know the price at this point, um, it will be a similar moment to when the Model T was introduced, where you had you know expensive technology that appeared as though it was for the rich, but then the Model T came out and the people working on the line were actually able to buy the product that was rolling off of it. And this feels like that moment, uh, at least for electric vehicles early on and, and electric pickup trucks for sure. The price tag will be something that Ford believes will be affordable. And the service networks, um, you know, the dealers have come along the journey with, with Ford in the creation of the F-150 Lightning. So there will be maintenance systems. So you won't have to worry about where to go if, if something happens, God forbid, to your, your new F-150 Lightning. And, I just, I mean, I, I know I'm kind of going on and on here, but I think the idea of sort of democratizing electric vehicles for everybody is something that hasn't really happened yet. And I think tonight and potentially over the next couple of months, Ford may be the first to begin to do that. Earlier, I spoke with Arnie Frobum, who you know is a senior policy analyst at MDOT about some of the history involved in states trying to have vending services and public right-of-way places like rest areas and why that's been such a challenge uh, with the federal highway administration and long ago laws that created the interstate system all of this all of what ford and and gm and other automakers are banking on and putting into electric vehicles is going to require uh, a, a 
charging network that feels like a big safety net to people with range anxiety, which is a very understandable emotion. Talk about your role in that and what the state can and should be doing to help support, you know, where we're going with electric vehicles. So I'm very lucky in this role and, and our office is very lucky to sit in between state departments. Um, and that's strategic, right? Because if we're going to be the mobility leaders, the electrification leaders, I mean, we got to pull in teams that are working on the grid, working on roads, working on economic development, working on labor. And so we we sit between those those couple of departments and have team members from each of those departments helping us out. So a, a couple of things that I'm seeing, at least from, from that vantage point, um, that get me real excited is uh, the work that the Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy have done around creating a DC fast charging network for worry-free EV travel throughout Michigan by 2030. And but they've already started, so I know that seems like it's in the future. But I mean, this is all, this isn't going to be one fail swoop. It's going to happen in in steps. Um, and they've already started optimizing placement of, of EV charging stations uh, statewide. They they just made an announcement a, a few weeks ago of rolling out um, 88 start chargers in really strategic locations. And, and they're leveraging the, the Volkswagen diesel settlement fund that the state was awarded uh, a few years ago to, to turn around this charging infrastructure. So it's a really smart business model, but it's not just state government, right? The utilities are making commitments in a big way. Um, DT Energy and Consumers Energy have partnered with six other utilities to make essentially travel from like Detroit to Wichita, Kansas easier for electric vehicles by 2022. And DTE and consumers have set ambitious decarbonization targets of 2050 and 2040, respectively. You know, it's important that when you cross a state line, the charging map and charging experience doesn't change. And so our office has been pretty active with work, working with other states, uh, specifically in the Midwest, to ensure that um, the Midwest has the best charging network in the world, not just Michigan. And, and that goes for both, you know, passenger vehicle travel and also uh, commercial commercial travel. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's an exciting time. <laughs> yeah, well, even though those those public utilities are regulated by each state, each state has, you know, some kind of public service commission that does those regulation. Uh, rates are going to be different from state to state based on, you know, supply and demand and deals they've made and, and probably what will be, you know, some kind of tax structure at some point as we figure out a way to, you know, pay for the roads that these vehicles still use. So at first I was thinking long gone will be the days where you like run to another state because gas is five cents cheaper, but we could still, we could still end up that way with electricity. You know, it's funny. I was just having a conversation um, about gas stations and the future of gas stations. And, you know, the thing is people are like, well, what's going to happen? Are they all going to go away? No, they're not going to go away because gas stations don't make money off of gas. It's it's almost like they're mis misnamed or, or they should be named something different. Um, and they probably will be at some point, like electric stations, charger stations, um, because they make their money off of convenience items. And the truth is they're going to be holding, at least in the near term, these station owners are going to be holding customers longer as their vehicles charge. Because right now it's pretty efficient to, to fill up, but it's probably going to take longer. Yeah, not too much longer, but longer in, in, in the immediate term. And you're going to have plenty of opportunities to provide new convenient services to, to those that are, are, are servicing your your station or patronizing your station, I should so say. More than just beef jerky. Yeah, right. More beef jerky. Well, um, so talk about where, where you think Michigan is and 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 where it should be. I mean, we've got we've got some we've made some some advances already. I mean, the network is probably more vast than people realize, especially people who don't have electric vehicles. But what do you 
see doing, I guess, and advocating to to get us to that that seamless point where where we really do, you know, where we don't need an emotional support animal with us anymore because we're not going to run out of electricity to fuel our vehicle. By the way, cats are my preferred um, animal for for that for emotional support. You don't you don't want a pony? Okay. No, no. Anyway, uh, so I, I think it comes down to this: that the governor or state department directors want a green, electric, and multimodal future that benefits our automotive industry and any other transportation industry. And in doing that, maintaining industry leadership, we're also making Michigan simply one of the best places in the world to move around. And in that future, there's a couple of barriers that we need to reduce, specifically for EV adoption. The first is efficiently integrating electric vehicle loads into the grid, uh, making strategic investments right now that put us ahead of states like Texas, Arizona, Sure, we may lose deals, economic development deals to these states at this point because energy costs are much lower there. But at some point, they're going to have to make large investments that are going to up the cost of doing doing business as it relates to energy costs. So in, in many ways, Michigan's very progressive in, in how they're looking at the future of renewables and the future of energy and are ahead of states that maybe are low cost states, but are going to need to, to upgrade soon. Uh, secondly, we want to leverage new technologies that assert not only Michigan's position, but North America's position as a global leader in electrification. Um, and that goes to like, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but that goes to innovations like bi-directional charging that add power back into the grid, wireless charging in motion where vehicles can charge just by driving because there's coils embedded in the road that are safe that charge the vehicle. Demand response situations. So leveraging uh, larger vehicles uh, to store energy and uh, use that energy where it's needed most. Um, and then the third thing, the you know, reducing barriers to, to EV adoption, something we're focused on here is creating great green jobs that build a stronger, more resilient Michigan economy, Midwest economy, American economy coming out of the pandemic. And in, in those three buckets, the integrating into the grid, leveraging new technologies and creating these great green jobs, our state's very much aligned with, you know, the federal job, the, the American jobs plan, and, and other things that, that the federal government is doing right now. Because you know what, we I, I think everyone can agree that there's gonna be some additional resources that are gonna come from Washington DC and impact states. So there's gonna be money to make the transition to electric. Absolutely. The question is, are we laying the right tracks right now to get our fair share of those dollars? And if we get those dollars, how quickly can we activate them? So how do you answer that question? Well, I don't think there's one easy answer. Um, I think that maybe the, maybe the easiest answer off the cuff is responsive policy and dynamic programming, leveraging what we have in our governor appointed Council on Future Mobility and Electrification to make policy suggestions that help us create the rights of way necessary to cap capitalize on the investments that the federal government makes in our state. Uh, dynamic programming, being a aggressive initiator of public private partnerships, similar to what MDOT has done with Cavenue and Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners in the Detroit to Ann Arbor corridor, there are partnerships, I think, in the green space and the electrification space that can that can be just as bold. Um, but we need to be, we can't rest on our laurels. We, we need to um, move fast in the sense of urgency. There are there's new competitors out there that aren't just states, <laughs> our entire countries. So you look at what Canada's doing right now, where you know we're we're competing with state incentives. Uh, against Canada, who has province incentives, but then also the federal government will kick in a couple hundred million. 
So what are we doing, not just to write the biggest check as, as a state to attract these companies, attract these investments, but what are we doing to create the ecosystem where we don't have to pay a premium each time we're competing for a company? You know, what are what are those what what are the tracks that we're laying? How are how are we laying them and how are we communicating them? That that's what's going to be critical. Well, you're right. And I think that uh, there's some some pretty good momentum that's created by private industry once again because of things like what Ford is doing. You know, that's that's mm -hmm. going to up demand. It's going to up sales and it's going to mean a greater demand for the electricity for those vehicles. Yeah. And traditionally, it's like infrastructure has been one. It's right. You invest in infrastructure to help people and goods move, whether it's transit, delivery vans, whatever it is. But then there's there's infrastructure you lay that create community vitality to attract companies, uh, to create jobs. And more and, you know, more than ever, th those two things are no longer siloed. Um, you can't separate infra smart infrastructure, electrified infrastructure anymore. I mean, those are core economic development pieces that are job creators that will attract the great companies, will attract portions of the supply chain that if you can get them in your state, you will have vitality for the next 50 years within your economy. It's all tied together more than ever now. Okay. I think this is a good place to end it because we're going to have plenty of opportunities to talk about this more and we will. Um, as always, Trevor, I appreciate your enthusiasm and your, your bullishness on our beautiful state and where we're going with everything related to mobility. So thank you. I still can't believe that Spencer Turnbull threw a no-hitter for the Detroit Tigers last night. Well, I'll send, you, I'll send you the link from MLB that will give you a quick video rundown of all 27 outs. I would appreciate that. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you again for listening to this week's edition of the Talking Michigan Transportation Podcast. I would like to thank Randy Doubler and Corey Petey for engineering this week's podcast. To subscribe to show notes and more, go to Apple Podcasts and search for Talking Michigan Transportation.